Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelly Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're welcoming Catherine Vandebelt to the show. She's currently the Global Vice President of Innovation at Oracle. Catherine's niche is in pharmaceutical clinical development and transforming organizations to meet aggressive financial and operational goals. She is also a podcast host of The Latest Dose, which explores the depths of innovation and human compassion in clinical research. Catherine received her bachelor's in pharmacology and physiology at the University of Toronto. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Thank you, Shelley. And thank you, Pat. Thanks for having me. Oh, welcome. Glad to have you here. Catherine, if you don't mind, please share with our listeners, what does it mean to be the Global Vice President of Innovation at Oracle? Oh, well, great question. Uh, sometimes I ask that myself each day. <laughs> <laughs> um, first, I'll start a little bit about Oracle is a large company and they provide solutions to many industries. Shelly mentioned that I focus on clinical research. So we also like work in communications, construction, finance, hospitality, to name some. But we, our business unit is focused on health science. So we are looking to make it easy to bring new inventions to the market in health. And that's usually a pharmaceutical company, biotech company, medical device, and so forth. So in order for me to contribute to that uh, goal, you know, we're trying to help our customers invent at the speed of science. So as things speed up, we're trying to come up with new and better ways to help make that happen. And my focus currently is on the people that choose to participate in clinical research. So that would be a volunteer or a patient and trying to make it easy, accessible, and inclusive for them to participate, as well as the healthcare providers who care for the clinical research participants or patients, and to make it easy for them to contribute, because we know how busy our healthcare providers are right now caring for patients, so it'd be great as they can also offer a clinical research option to them as well. So I'll repeat sort of in a nutshell, we're trying to come up with new and better ways to help our customers and clients move at the speed of science. And are those customers and clients, are they, are they primarily pharmaceutical organizations? Yes, like many, many are. And so they've come up with a new invention or a new indication. They're working with governments to show that it's safe and efficacious. And yes, the predominant market share is with them. Awesome. If you could, I'd like to know more about how you engage with the volunteers and the patients to speed up that, that process to move to the speed of science. So it's important to actually get to know patients. I was actually surprised through my career, and I've been in this industry for a while on this, the pharmaceutical side and now on the tech side, is that there's so much emphasis on privacy that some people actually forget you can just talk to people that have been in clinical research without, you know, breaching that privacy gap and really understand, you know, why they choose to participate. Was it easy? Did they feel they were kept informed? Did they have the ability to achieve everything that was possible and manage their daily life at the same time? And so, you know, really taking various opportunities to work with patient advocacy groups or individuals that have participated in clinical research, that's probably easier with larger 
indications that are prevalent throughout the society and just, you know, hear from them about what the whole journey was. A health condition is stressful, period. You get a diagnosis and you need to sort of deal with that. And then on top of it, then trying to figure out what path is best for you and then possibly doing something new, like a clinical trial. Maybe you've never done one before, never heard of it before. So that's another level of stress and so forth. So I think it's really, really important for people in this industry to try and really make sure that there's tools, capabilities, processes that are supportive of just what those individuals are experiencing at this time. Very cool. It's an interesting space right now. How did you get into this bag? I know your degrees in pharmacology and physiology. What made you go that route with your career? Great question. So to be honest, I originally was going to be a pediatric dentist. And a lot of people that have a pharmacology degree go into med school of some kind. It's great to actually have the foundation of knowing how the body works and how drugs work in your body and so forth. I ran out of money in school. So I knew there was a new law that was passed in Canada that provided patent protection for pharmaceutical products where that didn't exist in the past. So they started to hire individuals to participate and run clinical research for pharma companies because one of the requirements was that 10% of the sales of the pharmaceutical products needed to be reinvested in research and development. So when I um, was graduating and in need of money, uh, this law was passed. It was called Bill C-22. Therefore, they started to hire. And I was one of the first clinical research hires at Eli Lilly and Company in Canada. And I had such a great time, like all of a sudden, five years later, going back to dental school didn't seem to make sense. You enjoyed what you were doing so much that uh, going back to dental school was not that attractive or making just feeling good. What was your what was your thought process? Well, it was I really felt why I was going to wanting to be in the medical field was to help people. Mm -hmm. And to be frank, when you're going through middle school or high school, you kind of still, at least when I went to school, you sort of know what the primary professions are. So, you know, you hear about nursing or physiotherapist or occupational therapist or doctor, dentist or whatever. And I felt like I was actually achieving what motivated me was helping people. I was working with physicians. I was working in multiple indications. Uh, back then, it was very different than it is now. You know, you would be responsible for writing the protocol, creating the data capture methodology, collecting all the data, getting it to a statistician to analyze it, reporting on it. And so that just was extremely rewarding. Even though I didn't know the people that were participating in the clinical research studies, looking at the data and dealing with the data really gave me a sense of contribution, hopefully providing them with a sense of hope. And when you would like, some of them I followed for 13 years, uh, some I followed for two years. And you, though you didn't know their name or where they lived or anything like that, there was just a little piece of them and their journey that you felt you were getting to know. And so my motivation and my desire to help others was fulfilled actually by joining the pharmaceutical company. That's fantastic. It's so difficult when you're younger trying to figure out where you're going to go. What does it really motivate you? And, and I think that's a big challenge for a lot of folks to like figure out like, where do I really fit in? Because we only have a certain scope of what's possible, right? Absolutely. And so uh, with that idea of wanting to help others, creating a healthier world and hope, 
How are you achieving that with your, your current role as Global Vice President of Innovation at Oracle? One of the challenges that exists in clinical research is having the population participate that is reflective of the population that's actually dealing with the condition or the illness. And so what we are working on is how to be more inclusive, how to be ensure that there's an ability for diverse cultures, backgrounds, opportunities for the really what's reflective of the population to be involved in the assessment of safety and efficacy. That is so important because you know, this really is a controlled environment, you know, with an experiment and a clinical trial. Maybe this is not the best way to say it, but I always think you want like healthy, sick people. They don't have a lot of contraindications. They don't, you know, you're trying to control for a lot of variables. And so often that's taken to, you know, major cities or academic hospitals. And that's not necessarily reflective of the people that are actually experiencing these illnesses at this time. So, So really, really sort of focused on, yes, those places are great to conduct research, but then there's, you know, we have to make sure we get into the rural settings or the community settings or uh, the inner city parts and making sure that we're making it, it's trusting, like it's a trusting sort of experience, right? This is your health and that it is an accessible and uh, it able to support the demands of the different individuals that are going to engage in it. So that brings in choice. So we shouldn't basically be treating every single patient the same, but we need to be able to collect data that doesn't have the variability that you're able to get insights from it. So, you know, how do you do it successfully to handle all these different sources of data coming in from different places? How do you ensure that if a patient has a choice to go to the clinic or get something done like in a mobile bus or something that, you know, you're going to collect it in a continual way And how do you make people comfortable that they choose the option that is best for them so that they actually stay in the study? Because that's one of the key things to make it happen. So it's really looking at different ways and helping technology to, you know, enhance the ability to generate that awareness, to help people make a good informed decision. And then once they choose to participate, to try and make it easy for them to do that. So Catherine, I'm curious, who are the advocates for these patients to get into these clinical trials when you talk about, you know, being more inclusive? Is it the the hospitals, the doctors, the clinics? What does that look like? It depends on, so I'm not trying to be based, but it does depend on the different groups. So if you're dealing with somebody that's really, their health literacy is quite high chances are they will go to an academic center because they actually are aware of finding sort of that expert in that field or someone that's proficient in that field. Other individuals that are maybe not as health friendly or health literate may have an excellent relationship with their pharmacist or they have an excellent relationship with maybe someone in their community center or community church. Like a nurse, something of that nature. It could be, yeah, like a nurse, a nurse practitioner, someone like that. And so then it's whether or not that trusted connection leads to another connection. And then how, you know, how the decision is made, how that person is supported to be informed. So there's been a lot of work 
that's gone around. People say electronic informed consent, and it probably does that a disservice because before you, you guys are probably all familiar with the paper documents when you go to the doctors and they want your permission and all that type of stuff. Well, now think about how you can use technology to add videos that might be more gender specific or videos that are more culturally specific to explain maybe your condition, to have it in multiple languages, not just have it in English, but have it in your spoken language, to be able to give you opportunities to ask questions rather than read a document and sign and date it at the bottom. And then to have a live person as well as these electronic capabilities. So, and you may have experienced this in learning with your children, like through the pandemic. I'm not exactly sure because I didn't have that sort of experience, but really utilizing like a whole different level of content and in different formats and so forth and being able to do that. And so we need to do that at the awareness stage as well. And so we're rather than just, you know, rely on this communication or announcement or publication or so forth. And I think we can capitalize it because of COVID-19 has brought a lot of awareness around clinical research, but not enough for people maybe to decide to participate. So we still have a lot of work to do to use a lot of these channels and these approaches to help with awareness and then ultimately to create that trusted conversation and then move them to a place where they can actually contribute. You bring up the, the COVID scenario, and I think that's very interesting because there were a lot of studies that I wasn't aware of until somebody brought it to my attention that if uh, you were a certain age or weight, uh, there were specific studies that you could get involved in during the COVID, I would say that like the really scary part of it, right? In that late 20, early 21, uh, where I think there was there was a lot of fear. So is that one of the bigger challenges is the communication and, and getting that information out into the hands of, like you mentioned, uh, those not directly connected to, to the healthcare industry? Yes, it, that's part of it. So how I look at it sort of in the, a larger picture is that there's an opportunity. It's either because you've been given a diagnosis or you need a test done or you have a condition or whatever, but there's something that you now can make a decision on. And there are multiple options now available to you. And right now, what I'd love to see is that participating in a clinical trial is one of the options that are available. But I think the key with any health decision is you need to make the right health decision for you at the time. So if you're afraid, this is just my opinion, I'm sure other people would have other opinions I wouldn't suggest you go into a clinical trial. I think you need to feel confident that this is the right course for you, that it it fits in, that it makes sense that you want to do this. But, you know, often fear comes from lack of knowledge. So then how do you get the knowledge to people before they actually have to make the decision versus, you know, they have to make the decision and then you kind of like pile the knowledge on top. So Yes, you're right. There was a lot of these opportunities that materialized and there's a lot to be learned when you're actually introducing a new medicine into the community. And they know that there's what we call it cohort. So subsets of populations that should be studied quite explicitly. And an example I could give you was like uh, pregnant women. So generally, if never, you approach a pregnant woman and ask her to be in a clinical trial because it's not a proven therapy, okay? 
So there's kind of two ways you do research. So we learned through COVID-19 that actually a number of pregnant women did get vaccinated. So through their healthcare professionals, we then approached them and not me, us personally, but our customers approached them and said, you know, would you like to contribute to a study since you've already been vaccinated and you've now self-shared that you're pregnant? Are you interested in being in a follow-up study? And you'd be surprised the number of people that said, yeah, I'll do that. That's great. I'll do that. And what comes with clinical research is more care, right? Because you're having more, more touch points with your healthcare provider. You're being assessed on a regular basis. As information becomes available, it's shared with you. So it actually can be a very empowering and comforting and good care situation. And I think that's, you know, what is really good about what actually comes out. Not only do we get information for the whole community, but individuals can actually get a much more concentrated and better touch care while they're actually going through this. And that can also create that can rather than have this fear that you talked about, it can actually alleviate and get rid of some of that anxiety as well. That's the first thing I thought when you mentioned what happens afterwards, right? Just the diminishing of the isolation, right? You're you're sharing information. I think that's part of what makes people feel a whole lot better when it's like, hey, I'm I'm not in this alone. Uh, I am getting information. Other people are experiencing this, even if it's a negative thing, to know that it's not just you sometimes is it's really powerful. I think as uh, you know, humans, we, we need that connection. I think, I think we all recognize over the last couple of years, there's, there is some, some build to be paid on, on the lack of connection that we had for a while there. Uh, and so uh, it's the first thing I thought with some of the things you were saying is uh, feeling like you're connected with other people who are going through this with you would be immeasurably helpful. I think that's a great point. And I think that's why patient advocacy groups have also come up around that. And, and also then that's a great opportunity to share experiences and also share experiences with clinical research and make each other aware as well, or, you know, or nonprofit organizations that help with this. So you've actually spoken to, I think it's that shared experience or I'm not doing this alone in, I agree with you. It's my opinion that that drives a lot of the solidarity and a lot of the commitment to see things through. So I'm curious, how do you select what you're, you know, where, where are you focusing? What is the process by which you, you, I got to imagine in the innovation function that you're in, there's a lot of options to invest time, money, resources, all those wonderful things. How do you make a decision? How do you determine where to focus? Great question. And it's not an easy answer. So <laughs> I could imagine not. I can imagine a lot of hindsighting on that one. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. So I guess what's important in the years that I've been in innovation, which has been a few, uh, I think what's important is that you create some sort of area in which you're focusing on. So as I've been speaking with you today, I say I really focus on making it easier for people, predominantly the volunteer, the patient or the healthcare provider to participate in clinical research. So that might sound like a very narrow scope, but it still is quite large. And then when you think of the various stages, you know, you got phase one to phase four clinical research, you have the design phase, the execution phase, the reporting uh, and summary sort of phase. And so then you uh, sort of look at where the industry is still struggling. 
And uh, so then we look at the various phases and we're really, right now we are focused on the design to, you know, getting engaged and conducting the actual trials. So some people call that recruitment. Some people call that study startup. There's, you know, that sort of whole design to the enrollment sort of phase. And predominantly there's been activity in there, that space for a long, long time and different attempts have been made. But if you look at the data over the years, there's still a number of trials that never, ever finish because they didn't obtain the the size of the population they needed to have participate, or it took two, three years longer than they had anticipated due to the fact that uh, they weren't able to find people. And then you get into the other issue we've already talked about is, were they, was it really reflective of the, the population that we were looking to study? So we have to do it again. And all of that costs time, money, and it doesn't give us the insights we're looking for to make, you know, the pharmaceutical engineer make their future investments. So how do we look at, so this might sound a little bit odd, but, you know, how do you look at um, other industries like communication or hospitality or food and beverage and say, what does that have to do with clinical research? Well, it has to do with people. And you try and look at those industries and you know, how do they create awareness or how do they engender trust or how do they create connections or, or how do they stay connected or how do they stay informed? So basically, you know, you've got these big areas. You then look at where in the life cycle of bringing something to the market is still causing a huge pain that everyone sort of talks about. And then how do you sort of create and make up possible opportunities? And then how do you test them to see if they actually will have value or potentially solve the problem or they are just, oops, learned something and we'll apply that to the next one and let's do it again. So that's how we decide about, and if that's not clear, tell me and I'll give that another go. No, I, I think it's it's clear. There's a, and I love the idea that uh, experimentation, what's going on in the world, I think also part of the question that I'm curious about is, you know, for you, what are some of those indicators about maybe it's not the right time, right? Like it's a good idea. I could see it making sense, but what are your thoughts and any experience about we were too early, we were maybe too late? Okay, great. A great question. It's easy to tell that in hindsight. and, And as you experience more of those, Hopefully you're getting better at uh, making those decisions currently to try and influence moving forward. So we probably all remember when the uh, smartphone came out and then when the additional accessories came out, like all of a sudden now your, your scale can be connected to your phone or your watch and your, your heart rate can be connected to your phone or your number of steps you're taking and all that type of stuff. So you can say, well, you know what, this is all part of my health. This is all part of my wellness. You know, maybe we could look at new ways to collect data and so forth. And, and so all of a sudden people get really excited about this new way in which information is collected, rightfully so. It's exciting. It's different. It's effective. It's engaging. And then all of a sudden they'll say, well, let's do that. And let's apply that to clinical research. And so individuals they really need to understand the regulations quite well. They really need to understand the ecosystem quite well. They need to pay attention to what's going on in the trends. And yes, that is a great thing to do. 
but it was not a great thing to do 10 years ago. It's probably a great thing to do now. And so how do you get there? Well, you know, is the data reliable? Is the data, does it meet the parameters that would actually allow you to create insights for, or is it interesting? Is it a validated endpoint? And what does that mean? Did you even know to ask if it was a validated endpoint? So, so what happens sometimes is there's some great strides that are made and there's some new ways of working that are made that are actually like very, very motivating and very, very encouraging, but you really do need to understand your industry that you're in and not see it as a blocker, okay? So it was not that this way of collecting data was not feasible or not encouraging, motivating, or possible. It's just, there was a right time to do that. And there was some, you had to know what sort of things you maybe needed to invest in first, in order to pave the way for that to then take off. Because there's nothing worse than something being created and then it sits out there for multiple years stale. And then when the time comes and the market's ready for it, it still doesn't take off because it's been around forever and no one's used it and they don't trust it. And all of a sudden a great idea or a great way of working doesn't scale. Again, not because it's not the right time, it just doesn't make, like people just don't have trust in it. So it is a difficult, very, very difficult decision to make. And so I, I have ways that I've worked with my group to try and balance the creativity versus sort of assessing the right time or the wrong time for things. Some of that, like you said, you, you can hindsight all day, but you know, I, as you were talking, all I could think of, was, it was like Zoom. Uh, Zoom existed <laughs> before 2000, like March 18th, 2020, right? Yes. Which yes. sure existed in a whole different way, March 20th, 2020, yes. right? Uh, and yeah. the, the fact that there were people, and I, we're in the tech field, so like Zoom was already a thing for us. But it was interesting to me, the the adoption challenges for a number of people who had never really worked on, on a uh, digital video platform before uh, and how much it, it has become, you know, the Xerox of of covid right where it's it was a go-to move in many many ways so even it was a great idea before and it got to be even better an idea very rapidly and just from your perspective because i wonder on the specifically on the zoom component i think we all knew uh remote work was going to be the future regardless of covid right i think maybe people would have put that calendar maybe you know five to six years down the road But is that the things that you think about as well when you think about like contingencies of acceleration of like, you know, like trying to figure out where the market's going to go is is really uh, it's it's a fool's errand. But at the same point in time, when you think about disruptions and and contingencies, is that stuff that goes through your mind when, when you go through this process of like. Let's let's assume that we know nothing about what the world's going to do or mm-hmm. what are going to be the priorities in, in 18 to 24 months, because there's no way to know. So, uh, yes. And so this is how I talk about it with the folks that I work with, is that the first thing I ask them to do is if they're working at home to rearrange their desk so that it is a direct mirror to what they had before. So where their monitor and their computer and all that is or if they're driving to work, to drive a totally different way. And so the key for that is, is that you've asked them to change. 
And then you ask them how they like it. And um, a lot of times they don't. Yet they're responsible for creating things that are going to change the way people work and change what they're going to do. So then when you talk a little bit about, so, you know, why aren't you leaving your desk and office the way it was, or why aren't you going to continue to drive a different way to work all the time is because they don't have to, they don't feel that their productivity or their, their contributions is significantly enhanced or appropriate in order for them to, to make the change. So then you say, well, then whatever you create and you think is going to be brought to the market, however, whether you piece things together, whether it's something brand new or whether it's just, you know, whatever that looks like is it has to be compelling enough for people to change. So you talked about Zoom. It existed. Telemedicine existed and so forth. But you know what? It wasn't a change that many people wanted to take the time to learn or wanted to necessarily maybe do it that way. But there all of a sudden was a crisis that came. So I call that like a burning platform. So it's a visual, like what you're standing on is burning. So you want to get off of it, right? You want to get to a place that's cooler, that's not going to cause you physical harm and so forth. And so the the pandemic created that burning platform. And so it forced people to change. When you don't have that, you have to have a huge value proposition to get people to change. And so you really need to understand both. So, you know, if we can come up with a way to improve a person's experience in clinical research, but we only, you know, increase that by 1%, that's not enough. Like, for that one person, I'm not talking 1% across the world. I'm talking like right. for that one person, that's not enough. So how do you, how do you get some tangible, qualifiable and quantifiable information so that you actually know what your success criteria are and then stick to them, measure them and stick to them because I, it's going to be rare that you have these burning platforms that happen over and over again. And so it's critical that you, you know, even when you come up with the idea, you start to think about what hurdle do I have to jump over, surpass for me to continue? Otherwise, I take this as a learning and I apply it to the next thing I'm doing. That's fantastic. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today and share your experience and your background. Sounds like you're doing some really amazing things. It's such an exciting space to be in it. I I saw the growth numbers in the industry, and I would say that it's so much bigger in industry than I think it's ever been. Uh, I was thinking like 10, 12 years ago uh, when I was recruiting for engineering students, just that space has blown up in, in such a big way. And so much so here in Chicago, we've got AbbVie and Abbott and Baxter and just to name a few, right? Absolutely. And so it's just a, it's a huge uh, growing industry. Uh, it's amazing to think about uh, what's going to be possible in the next decade, considering the the Petri dish we, we just went through. So, Kevin, thank you so much for being on the show today and, and sharing your experience and sharing your wisdom. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, thanks, Shelly. Thanks, Pat. And I wish you all the best. Thank you. You too. We also want to thank our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast 
or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.